0: This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. We'll begin by introducing again from 1 Peter chapter 2 underneath the title on the chart this morning. First Peter two, verse nine and ten. Where Peter writes, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him that hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And I mentioned this morning that Peter's writing to those who are the people of God. We often hear it said today that the Jews are God's chosen people. And I showed you this morning that at one time they were. But remember, their standing with God, their occupying that place of being His people, was always conditional upon them keeping God's Word and keeping the covenant that He had given to them. And they didn't keep that covenant. In fact, they finally killed God's son. And so because of that, they never retained that privilege because of their disobedience. They could have still and and still can be part of God's chosen people. But because a person descends today from Abraham's lineage, even if he could prove that by his pedigree, by his genealogy, that would not make him one of the people of God or a child of God today. That's the purpose of the study this afternoon to build off what we talked about this morning. And you'll remember this morning we left off with a scripture from 1 Peter, if you'll read it now with me in this sheet that I gave you today. 1 Peter 2 verse 21 to 24. Peter wrote, For even here were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us, ex- leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus did no sin, the Bible says. There, there was no guile found in his mouth. Imagine living a lifetime like that without having sinned. That's Jesus, the only, only person to ever do that. And he had to live sinless in order to die on the cross for us. Had Satan tempted the Lord and got him to sin just once, just say, tell one lie, then God's plan of salvation would have been destroyed right there. Christ would have had to have died for his own sin and not ours, because he would have been guilty of sin too. He had to be sinless, just like the goats, just like the bullock were animals without blemish, without spot. They had to be, and they were certainly innocent when they were slaughtered, and their blood offered in there at that mercy seat. And uh, they had done nothing, and yet they were slaughtered. Jesus had done nothing, and yet Our sins were were laid over on him, and he suffered and died. He shed that blood that gives us forgiveness. But you know what? We have more needs than just forgiveness of sin. I mentioned this morning, man's got two great needs, folks. We've got to have a sacrifice for our sins that can appease God's anger, pay our debt, and enable God to be just when he justifies the unjust. The blood of Jesus exactly does that. But what good is it to be forgiven of our sins, go down into the grave, and not live again? We would simply go into the ground forgiven. The soul might rest in a place of comfort, all right, but the body will never see any life again unless someone has power to raise it from the dead. So the third day, as we talked about this morning, as was mentioned at the table, maybe by several others, the third day Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible gives a lot of evidence for His resurrection. I'm sure you've heard sermons here preached on the resurrection of Christ and evidence about that. There's abundant evidence. Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ was seen of above 500 brethren at once. He said, of whom the greater part remained, but some are fallen asleep. Most of the eyewitnesses of Jesus were yet alive, the majority of that 500 even, when Paul wrote the Corinthian letter. And he wrote that letter, incidentally, around 57 A.D. from the city of Ephesus over to Corinth. So Jesus died around 30 A.D., 27 years later. There are the greater portion remaining of those 500 that saw him after he'd risen from the dead. All of the apostles saw him. And so uh, there's, great, there's great evidence and testimony. Last of all, of course, Paul did. And uh, that's some of the greatest evidence in the Bible is the fact that Paul declared that he saw him there on that road near the city of Damascus. It changed Paul's life from a persecutor to a preacher. And he was never the same thereafter. Every one of these men died, these apostles except maybe John, for affirming the fact that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. They never denied that even to save their belongings, even to save their own lives. What fools they would have been if they were simply pawning a hoax off on all of the people and making up the story of his resurrection. There's just such great evidence in the Bible. You and I, you see, are a three-part being. Now, I've got some scripture on the board behind me that's not on your chart. But while we're here together, I want to give you this. And I think you may want some of it. And if you want to write this down, you can do so now, or we'll leave it on the board here for you. But I want to, I'll have to quote these. I don't have them listed there for you, but the references are up here behind me. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23 is an interesting verse. Paul said, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus. Man is a three-part being. He's spirit, soul, and body. Death is separation. That's all death is, and death's coming for all of us. And these three parts of us are going to separate, and every one of them go to a different place. That's what I want to mention. The spirit of every person goes back to God. That's true of a saint or a sinner. In Ecclesiastes 12 and 7, the Bible says, Then shall the the body returned to the dust as it was, and the Spirit unto God who gave it. So at death the Spirit goes back to God. In Luke 23 in verse 46, when they were crucifying Christ, Jesus prayed, Father, into thy hands I commend my Spirit. And so he commended that Spirit back to his Father. In Acts 7 and verse 59... The Bible says they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, "Lord Jesus, receive my spirit." So, spirit uh, uh, Stephen understood that his spirit went back to God. There's three plain scriptures showing us that the spirit returns to God at death. God takes care of that spirit, so that's with Him. That life that we have, that. That spirit that animates the body, that gives it life, goes back to God. Man is also a soul. What happens? What happens to the soul at death? Well, it has to go somewhere too. In Luke 16, verse 22 and 23, Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, two men that lived here on earth. He tells us in verse 22, it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and in hell, and that word hell's Hades. In Hades he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The rich man died and was buried. There's his body. Where's his soul? It went to Hades. The spirit, remember, returns to God. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. When Jesus died, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. His body was placed in the tomb. Where's his soul? Peter declared and David declared that the soul of Jesus went to Hades when he died. The soul of everyone goes to this place. It's the, it's the unseen world. The Jew believed it was in the heart of the earth. And uh, the soul goes there. It has two sections. It has a place of comfort called Abraham's bosom for the righteous. It has a place of torment for the souls of the wicked. It's a holding place for the soul until Jesus comes back to resurrect our bodies. The soul has to go somewhere. And this seems to be the place that it goes according to Scripture. We read in Acts chapter 2 now as Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. He's just preached the death and resurrection of Christ. In verse 25, he's going to quote from Psalm 16. Should have put this up there. Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, is quoted here in Acts 2. He said concerning Christ and His resurrection, for David speaketh concerning Him. Now here's the quote from Psalms. I foresaw the Lord always on my face, before my face, for He is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou will not leave my soul in hell, Hades. Neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known unto me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. In verse 29, Peter interprets this. Because it looks like David says, Thou will not leave my soul in hell. As if he's talking about himself, but he's really talking about Jesus. And and Peter wants folks to know this. Men and brethren, verse 29, let me speak unto you, the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, David being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul, was not left in hell. See, when Jesus died, his soul went to Hades. His soul was not left in hell, Hades. Neither did his body see corruption. So that holy one, the body of Christ, never saw corruption. That is, it never returned to dust. This Jesus, he said, that God raised up, whereof we're all witnesses. So there again, the, the soul even of Christ went to this place. And he was there three days while his body was in the tomb. Resurrection day, of course, that soul came out of there. He conquered that place. He said he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. He was talking about his resurrection. He wasn't talking about hell prevailing against the church. He said, The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, against my building the church. And that third day, he came forth from Hades, and he conquered that place. He's got the keys to it now. And when he comes back, those souls that are there will be, will be released because he has authority over that place. He broke free. He owns that place. He conquered it. He did the same thing with the grave for us. Think about this. When you and I die, who's going to get you out of the ground? You know, there are a lot of people around the world counting on Muhammad to get them to God. Muhammad can't help them. He needs a resurrection himself. You see, he not only can't raise himself, he can't raise any of his followers. The man's helpless. Any Eastern guru, any so-called prophet like Joseph Smith, anyone that men today follow, will never be able to help them get up out of the ground, but Jesus Christ can. John 5, verse 28 and 29, the body goes to the grave. Jesus said, Marvel not at this for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So, Christ has that power over the grave. He demonstrated that in John 11 at a city called Bethany where his friend Lazarus had died. And Mary and Martha, his two sisters, were heartbroken. They came to Christ and said, Lord, if you'd have been here, our brother had not died. Jesus said, Where have you laid him? They said, Come and see. He goes out to the place. It is a cave, it's got a stone rolled over the entrance. Jesus said, remove the stone. They said, Lord, he's been dead four days. His body stinks by now. Nevertheless, at Christ's word, they removed that stone. Jesus paused for a minute and prayed. He usually talked to his father in secret, but this time he prayed openly. Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I know always that thou hearest me. I said it for those that stand by so that they may believe. And then he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The Bible says Lazarus came out of there, bound head and foot with grave clothes, Jesus, and a napkin on his head. Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Somebody remarked once, it's a good thing he said, Lazarus, come forth. If anybody else had been buried nearby, they would have come. He has power over the grave, folks. And when he said in John 5, all that are in the grave will hear his voice. That's what will happen. So we're utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ if we're ever going to be raised from the dead. And what I'm trying to say here today is you and I need one person desperately in our lives. We'll never make heaven without him, and that's Jesus. Only his blood And pay the debt for our sins and only his power can resurrect us from the grave. He's the only one that can get our soul out of Hades. He told John in Revelation chapter 1, 18, fear not. Behold, I'm he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. And have the keys of Hades and of death. Keys meaning authority. Christ has authority over death, which is the grave in this case. And over hell, which is really the Greek word Hades. He has authority over Hades in the grave. We're never going to rise without him. So Jesus rose that third day. I didn't get to talk about that this morning, but I knew I would bring it forth this afternoon. Now there's the scripture on these three parts to us and what happens when they separate at death. Christ then sent the apostles out And also us, of course, through the years, through the Great Commission, to go preach this good news. 1 Corinthians, excuse me, in in Mark 16. I better give you 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Paul said, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand. This is on the, the page I gave you by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So the gospel then, this gospel Paul gave to the Corinthians, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in the Great Commission, in Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, Jesus sent them out to preach it. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The word gospel is good news. And what's the good news? That Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Christ wanted that preached to every person on earth. And he said the one that will believe that and be baptized I'll save him. He makes that promise and he sent the men out to preach. The gospel now remember was to go to the Jew or to the Jew first. The Jews had been God's chosen people. Because they had been, God gave them the privilege of hearing the gospel before anyone else. He started in the city of Jerusalem 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, the day of Pentecost. And he turned the apostles loose to preach it that day, and 3,000 people were saved and added to the church. And the church began that day. God had this plan in mind before the foundation of the world. The Jews had corrupted the law that God gave them, the law of Moses. Us Gentiles had violated the law in the heart. The whole world stood guilty. Jesus bore all of our sins. And now the good news was sent out after his resurrection. Go tell people that I died, was buried, and rose the third day. Give them this good news. The one that will believe it and be baptized shall be saved. And they went out first to the Jew And preached it there. Paul, when he would travel and do his work of evangelistic uh, endeavor to take the gospel to the world around the Mediterranean Sea, all of the outposts of the Roman Empire where he preached, that gospel always went to the Jew first. I want you to read with me Acts 13 verse 44 to 46. The Bible says the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city to hear the Word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the Word of God should first have been spoken to you. That is, they were Jews, see. But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Always, Paul, when he went to a city that had a synagogue, gave the gospel to the Jew. When they ultimately rejected him, he began to preach to the Gentiles in that place because it was to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. In Acts chapter 2, God called the Jews. The gospel was first preached. In Acts chapter 10, at the house of Cornelius, he began to call us Gentiles. The plan God had in mind all the while was to reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto him in one body by the cross. Break down the middle wall of partition. Separating Jew and Gentile, which was always the law, and form one people for his name out of a remnant of Jews that would believe in Christ and obey him, and out of any Gentiles that would come to Christ. Remember, Jesus is Abraham's seed. God promised Abraham's seed that would number stars in heaven and sand upon the seashore. This is the promise being fulfilled. It included us Gentiles. And Paul teaches such over in the book of Galatians and elsewhere. And so they're sent out then to harvest the souls that were then in their generation and we're still doing that today. You and I are part of that. We are those that believe in Christ. We are the people of God. And now I want to read some scripture about that because... You see, just because you trace your pedigree, if you think you even can, back to Abraham himself will not make you a child of God. We are children of God by our relationship to Abraham through Jesus. If we are Christ, we belong to, to, uh, we belong to God. We're Abraham's seed in that sense. Uh, in 1 Timothy 3.15, I mentioned those that are called out, and uh, if you'll just look on the front of your chart briefly before we read this, look past the cross to the right, and you'll see the called out. Just like Abraham back in the long ago was called and separated out from all other humanity, ever since Pentecost Day, God has been calling people out of the world, separating and calling them aside as he did Abraham. Abraham making them his people, making them part of a holy nation, of his peculiar people, of a royal priesthood, of a holy nation. And this was his plan here. It's called the church. Now in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul said, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, The house of God is the church of God. Now, what's the house of God? What's David Zeebok's house? It's his family. It's his family, that's his house. They They are his children. Nobody else is. They might be a niece, nephew, kin folks, or not kin at all. But you see, his children are in his family. They're in his house. They're part of the house. In, the, in like manner, God's house is the church. It's the church of God, the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And since the church is God's house, it's God's family. And if you're in the church, you're a child of God. His children are in the house. They're not anywhere else. And this was the plan all along. To take Jew and Gentile and make them part of the house of God. The only way a Jew today is part of the chosen people of God is if he believes in Christ, he has obeyed the Lord in baptism, and he's been added to the house of God, the church. That's true of the Gentile also, but it's also true of the Jew. Galatians 3 now, read with me verse 26 to 29. Paul said, for you're all the children of God. How? Because you're born to Abraham. You're all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. See, God don't care anymore. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There's that seed promise we talked about this morning. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed. So here today, you that are Christians, you that belong to Christ, you are the seed of Abraham. Not those in the Middle East who don't believe in Jesus Christ, who deny that he's the Messiah, these are not the children of God. You're the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That Jew is welcome to believe in Jesus. He was offered that opportunity first. And those that accepted that offer and obeyed the gospel are God's chosen people, that remnant of Jews, the remnant of Gentiles that are left. That have embraced Jesus Christ are God's chosen people. Both of them together, reconciled in one body, are the people of God. And that's who Peter wrote to in the opening scripture that we've read. All right? In Romans 2, now, verse 28 and 29, an interesting passage. Paul said, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. He is not a Jew which is one outwardly. That means that, that he is not God's Jew. He may be a Jew. He may be called Israel. But he is not, he's not God's Jew just because he's a Jew outwardly. He's not circumcised just because he has physical circumcision. Every Christian's been circumcised, male and female. It's a circumcision of the heart in the cutting away of the fleshly desires of the heart. And we must all have it. It's an operation of God. If you're a Christian today, you are a Jew, a spiritual Jew. You're a Jew inwardly. If you're a Christian today, you've been circumcised when you were baptized. And all of that fleshly desire cut from the heart like that. And that operation has has taken place. And you're Abraham's seed. Romans 9, verse 6 to 8. Not as though the word of God had taken none effect. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. You understand what he's saying here. They're not all Israel which are of Israel. Because you're an Israelite naturally, because you're an Israelite by birth, you're not all, you're not Israel. That won't make you Israel. That's what Paul's arguing here. So they're not all Israel, which are of Israel. God has an Israel today. And that Israel that he has today, the Jew, is composed of Jews that have embraced Christ and Gentiles, which have embraced Christ. And they are united in one body that we call the church. This was always the plan. It's the reason why the Jew was chosen and why God preserved that people, even in times of captivity, because the bloodline was kept intact to bring Jesus from Abraham's lineage through David and bring him into this world of the seed of Abraham, so that when we obey him, Abraham's offspring, Christ, we too become Abraham's seed because we are connected to Christ, you see. We're his children, therefore we're part of Israel. This was the whole plan spiritually. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10 now down at the bottom, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him that have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Remember in in Exodus 19 this morning, I I remarked around verse 5 to pay attention to this. God told Israel through Moses, if you'll indeed keep my word and my covenants, you'll be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. You'll be a peculiar people. You'll be a holy nation. You'll be kings and priests. You'll be a royal priesthood. He promised that to the Jew. They didn't keep covenant. And because they didn't, they lost that privilege. That privilege has been transferred to the church through Jesus Christ. And so you and I are part of that promise that was made back there to Isaac through Abraham. All right? Now, the people of God. That necessitated, if you'll turn the scripture over here, that necessitated, folks, a change in the Jewish priesthood and in the law. And the writer of Hebrews says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change of the law also. You see, you and I are priests now. If you're a Christian, you're part of a royal priesthood. We offer up sacrifices to God. We don't need a descendant of Aaron. We don't need anyone from the tribe of Levi out of the family of Aaron to serve as our priest. Jesus is our high priest since we're connected to him and we are his offspring now. We are the priesthood. And us being the priesthood now and the Levitical priesthood taken away, there had to be a change in the law as well. And of course, the law was changed, it was nailed to the cross. A new covenant has come into effect. We call it the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 to 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, and he's quoting now from Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. He'll quote that in just a moment. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with him, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. This is Jeremiah 31 that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. See, there's that covenant they didn't keep. They continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first oath. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Folks, for 40 years, this gospel was preached to the Jews. God allowed a generation the time to transition from the law over to the gospel. To understand that they're under a different covenant. To understand Jesus Christ and His sacrifice and His resurrection, the significance of all of it, that was preached to them. For the most part, the Jew rejected that. There was a remnant called the elect that believed those those things that were preached and obeyed the gospel and came to faith in Christ and accepted these promises. The majority of the Jews rejected it. But you know, as long as the old temple stood there in Jerusalem, it was hard for Jewish Christians to let it go. If you'll remember when Paul came in off his third missionary journey, even James approached him. They said, Paul, listen, a lot of the Jews here that are Christians, they they hear your You're out here teaching Gentiles not to circumcise, to forsake Moses' law, to not keep the customs. So we want you to be at charges. We've got some men here with a vow. We want you to pay charges for them. In other words, we want you to buy the sacrifices that have got to be offered here at the temple for them. And uh, show that, that you're zealous for the law too. Probably with Paul's understanding at that time, he went ahead and participated in that. You see, as long as the Jewish system was standing, as long as the temple was there in Jerusalem, as long as there was a priesthood, folks, as long as animals were being sacrificed on the altars there, the Jews just couldn't seem to let the the law go, even the Jewish Christians, a lot of them. They could not let it go. They couldn't let the feast days go. They just couldn't let those traditions go. Until God finally forced them to let everything go. He had it physically removed by Rome. He took care of the problem. Listen, there's not been a a sacrifice offered on a Jewish altar by a Jewish priest since 70 A.D. when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. He he destroyed their priesthood. He destroyed their sacrificial system. And he took their temple out of the way physically. Jesus predicted this before he died. Read with me some scripture now as we close. Matthew 23, verse 34 to 38. Wherefore, Jesus said, Behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you shall kill and crucify, some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Folks, God pulled out of that. He pulled out of Judaism. He left it desolate like a dead carcass. He pulled out of that house. He pulled out of that temple. And Jesus told the disciples that that temple would be destroyed in Matthew 24, verse 1 to 2. Jesus went out and departed from the temple. The disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another which shall not be thrown down. So Christ said, this marvelous temple you're showing me, there won't be one stone left here upon another. He'd already told them that in Luke 19. Read with me verses 41 to 44. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Jesus saw Jerusalem as he descended the Mount of Olives. and As he approached, he began to cry broke his heart because the Jews were going to reject him and kill him. And he knew the doom that was coming on this city one day. He saw that city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they're hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round. And keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the day of thy visitation. In 70 A.D., the Roman armies came. They surrounded Jerusalem. Jesus died in 30 A.D. By 70 A.D. This began to be fulfilled. He gave it a generation. Gave the Jews space to become his, his people. They rejected him. They said his blood be on us and our children. That's what they told Pilate. And it was. Rome surrounded that city. Josephus was there as a Jew who was captured and he witnessed the destruction at that time. Rome killed 1,100,000 Jews here in Jerusalem. 1,100,000 right there. All over Judea they killed a 1,357,000. They leveled that temple to the ground. Historians said it looked like a plowed field when they got through with it. Some of the stones in that temple were as long as 67 feet. They were huge stones, nine feet thick, some of them, some of them white marble. They leveled that place. There's never been a Jewish priesthood. There's never been a Jewish sacrifice. There's never been a Jewish temple since 70 AD when Rome came to destroy them, and that was God's doing. He used Rome to punish them, to get their attention. Hopefully some Jews after that understood we have offended God in what we've done to his son. And he has poured this punishment this wrath out on us. Those are not the chosen people of God in the Middle East because they descend from Abraham. You and I are God's chosen people today because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist tried to preach this in Matthew 3, verse 7 to 10. Read with me. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, literally you offspring of snakes, he told them. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the tree. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So John says, Don't come in here telling us that you're Abraham's children. God can create Abraham's physical children out of stones here. And of course, John was preaching the one coming after him, Christ, the seed of Abraham. In John 3, verse 1 to 7, the Bible says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water. And to the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. God is not interested today in our pedigree. He's not interested in whether we're kin to Abraham in the flesh. He's interested in our relationship to his Son, Jesus Christ, And whether we have believed in him and obeyed the gospel. And whether we serve him faithfully. That's who God's children are. That's the people of God today. Composed of any Jews who will do that. And any Gentiles. Reconciled unto God in one body that we call the church. Look on the front of the chart this morning. Over on the right edge below the church building. I stuck a building there to represent the church. The church is not a building, it's people. The church, of course, the Greek word, ekklesia, the called out. We are the called out as Abraham was. We are called out, separated off from the rest of the world. We are the church, the called out. We are the house of God. We are Abraham's seed. We are spiritual Jews. We are the Israel of God. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are the people of God if we're in this church. And that's what I wanted to impart today and remind you of. We have nothing to brag about. We have nothing to boast of. This was secured for us by Jesus Christ. And as I said this morning, you and I need him desperately because everyone that doesn't have him will go to this lake of fire there at the bottom and they will pay the debt for their sins which is a second death and it's eternal while those that are connected to Christ will be taken to an everlasting home in heaven. There's the difference. Only Jesus can get us to that home. Not our relationship to Abraham. God doesn't care about that anymore. If you've got a kinship to Abraham, that's fine. But you better have one to Jesus. If you're not kin to Abraham physically, that's fine too. Just have that connection to Christ. Just be baptized into Christ and put on him and serve him. And you'll be part of that chosen people. As I said, there's nothing here to boast about. This was secured for us at Calvary by Christ. That's the message today. You can be part of the chosen people of God. You can have your debt paid for you by Jesus. That debt has got to be paid. God will demand payment. The wages of sin is death. He has decreed that. He cannot change. He will not change. He will not respect persons. And there's a day of reckoning coming. And if we've let Christ pay that debt... We're going to be fine. But if we if we have not done that, we're going to pay the debt. That's the lake of fire. The good news is, the good news is Christ died for our sins. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You need him more than anyone in this universe. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.